This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. One of the things I, I said last night that I value about Buddhism and Zen Buddhism is its diversity. Its diversity of forms and diversity of practices and diversity of cultures. <coughs> inevitably shaped by the culture that it uh, finds itself in at the time, historically and geographically. So when Buddhism came to the West, and when Zen came to the West, um, the diversity has increased. Hopefully we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but um, it may be getting more and more hard to define exactly what the baby is these days. So, um, the school of Zen that I belong to, uh, Joko Beck's Ordinary Mind School, as all of you know, or most of you know by now, um, Joko was trained in the kind of uh, Koans and that uh, Peter was talking about this morning. And uh, it was something she later came to um, not totally uh, disregard, and, and she still at times uh, worked on koans with some of her students, but uh, it eventually became less and less of a, a core part of her practice in terms of the, her sangha. And uh, my teacher, Barry Majid, has continued that. He, we, we don't meditate on koans. Uh, we might use koans to have a, give a dharma talk on or uh, discuss together, but we don't use them as meditation objects, such as the one Mu that Peter was talking about. And um, hence, um, the, the, the emphasis on the kind of uh, cutting off the mind road, uh, the single-pointed single uh, concentration practice that sometimes were used in koan practice was again, that was not part of the, the practice that we do in ordinary mind school. Um, we, we, we have a much more uh, a gradual 
metaphorically speaking, bottom-up practice. Um, and uh, we don't necessarily try and cut off the mind road. Um, so, Joko and my teacher Barry were very concerned to develop a psychologically minded Zen practice. And we're still in the process of really developing that and seeing that where that will take us. But I've just been reflecting today and for a few days um, I'm still trying to gather my thoughts and viewpoint about this. Um, but um, even though I think there's something very important and very valid about the realization of our deep uh, connectedness to the body and through our body to the rest of uh, the universe, uh, the sense in which uh, the separation can fall away in that way. Um, how the other night Peter was talking about the uh, the epiphany of of, 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 of or the wonder of discovering he was in this, this human body when it really hit him after um, making eye contact with a cow, I think it was, in India. And, um, and, and even though I'm really find this body wondrous and we need to be tender towards it and love it. Um, one thing that's always troubled me a little bit in terms of classical Japanese Zen practice, um, and probably because it comes from a more collective culture. So not only is Western culture more psychological, a Japanese, a classical Japanese Zen teacher is not psychologically minded. Um, we also have a much more individualistic culture as well. And when you think about it, what makes us uniquely human is not just having the body, and not just being the body, not just being a human body, even though that's miraculous and everything which follows could not follow. Everything is conditional upon and dependent upon being in a human body, that's true. But what is it that makes us uniquely human? That's a, a question. Anyone like to comment? Just their conscious awareness. The fact that we can theorize about our own existence. Mm. And that's conceptualize, we can conceptualize, we can, we can create a thought out of virtually nothing. Mm. So the sense in which we're, we're, we're conscious of being here and we're, we're conscious of, of, of having a self, right? Mm. Um, not only do we wear different clothing and have different colored eyes and, and so on, but we, we're also uniquely ourselves. And the self, in that sense, is not, you know, sometimes one may get the impression when we read some of the classical Zen texts about no self or seeing through self or um, that the self is somehow a bad thing or something that we need to jettison in some way. I think that that's, that's, a, that's not the way I would view it. Um, 
in, in many ways the uh, the self that we, we treasure is um, something which is um, not a given. It's not something we're necessarily born with. And it's transient and it's fragile. It certainly has no fixity, it has no permanence. But on the other hand, it's something we all treasure and value very much because if you didn't have a self, it would not be possible to experience intimacy with another human being. I personally have not gone through the, the tragedy of a family member with Alzheimer's, but I, I have a friend whose father had Alzheimer's. And I can only imagine what that would be like to, for example, have a partner and, uh, and witness that partner's self slowly disappearing. How, how tragic that would be. So, yes, it's, I think it's a very important part of Zen practice to, and I think it's very stabilizing and like, so like for example, focusing on the breath, focusing on the body, um, being a kind of sitting like a mountain, so to speak, can be a very way in which we can get through very turbulent periods in our lives, psychologically. Uh, our ability to surrender to the breath, to surrender to the body, to surrender to our absolute contingency upon nature, the sense that we absolutely have no control over what's going to happen next, whether we have a stroke or a heart attack or... This body is a very fragile thing. And it's also naturally anxious as well. Um, we all inherit the animal body that's been passed down over thousands of years, which is geared towards survival. In some ways, I think, from an ordinary mind perspective, we can view the awakening process, awakening to this life, as a as a movement from the self-centered self to what we might call the life-centered self or the heart-centered self. We don't want to do away with self. I'm not quite sure what name to give the, the self we're moving towards, but um, even the self-centered self should not be interpreted as a kind of selfish thing. It's, uh, it's certainly, it certainly is often me-centered, but that often comes about through our biological wiring to, to survive. So in many ways, Zen practice, and Zen is not the only spiritual practice, I'm sure, that does this, but in many ways, we're actually swimming against the tide. We're swimming against the current. Um, we're swimming against the the instinct we might have to uh, put ourselves first, although some may argue that altruism is also wired into our system through our mammalian, mammalian heritage. But um, that's a, a point I don't need to go into. I was, I was actually struck when Peter was talking about his um, encounter with uh, Ainsley Mears and the book he read by Ainsley Mears. Ainsley Mears being one of the first psychiatrists in Australia to um, introduce this kind of um, practice 
that uh, Peter was talking about and the deep relaxation and, and so on. Um, the interesting thing is uh, that the uh, Ainsley Mears' son, uh, Russell Mears, um, is also a very well-known psychiatrist. And uh, Russell Mears would now be in his um, late 70s. And uh, he's one of those uh, um, psychiatrists and psychotherapists. He's a psychoanalytical psychotherapist. Who, who combines a wonderful knowledge of, of science and the biology and the brain with a wonderful <coughs> appreciation of poetry and art. And he's, he's dedicated all his life to studying the self. And, um, and one of his books was called Alienation and Intimacy, one of his first books, second book, I think. And... Uh, in, in that book, he focused on um, how when, as, as children, when we're subjected to a lot of developmental trauma, how it becomes very difficult to develop a, a self which is capable of, of genuine play and intimacy. And he, he put down the experience of play as a child as being one of the important developmental formative factors in how we develop this capacity for intimacy. And, and, and when a child is exposed to violence and abuse, that particular self is, is it's very difficult to develop. And um, so he talked about how important it, it is to try and generate that kind of uh, self through conversation. So, and a kind of conversation which enlivens and vitalizes and helps to create a sense of an inner life. And that's the kind of realm of poetry and imagery, free-flowing association. Um, you, you actually can trace that right back to Sigmund Freud, actually, who encouraged free association in his patients to, to try and help them break through some of their rigidities and uh, repressions. And uh, there's a connection there with, with Zen. Um, Zen's never always just been about meditation. It's also been about rhetoric and it's about a bit of immediacy, spontaneity, relationships, even in the classical tradition. So we're, we're actually in the West, we're, we're kind of like, um, I guess, extending and playing with it a, a lot. And uh, so, yeah, on the one hand, um, I kind of concentrated practice might help us break through the illusion of separateness uh, or appreciate the wonder of existence. Um, but um, we, don't, we don't necessarily have to see the mind road as being the enemy. Um, when we get caught in loops and get stuck in repetition of, of, of very sort of negative scripts that many of us get caught in through our culture or trauma, Yes, we need liberation from that. But not, it's not just meditation that does that. It's a sense of um, openness to the arts and to creativity and to having conversations and being vulnerable in those conversations to be able to feel that we can speak freely without censoring ourselves. And so... Um, when we're sitting in, 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 in meditation, um, um, 
we don't necessarily have to cut thoughts off, so to speak. Um, a lot of thoughts are just, they're just very transient, they're very empty, and they're very, I mean, thoughts themselves have no inherent existence in that sense. They're just like everything. They're just like the, the sun shimmering, shimmering on the water. Like those impressionist paintings that they tried to capture, that, you know, that evanescence. Thoughts are just like that. But when they, and, and, and when we can actually, like, just go into that flow of free associative, analogical or metaphorical wordplay, um, that, uh, and, and we can do that perhaps with a friend or a partner or even a stranger to allow ourselves to to share and, 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 and go into reverie about the past or memories about the past. These are not necessarily bad things. These can be just as um, enlivening as, as, uh, as any kind of mindfulness practice. Um, you know, listening to poetry, expressing ourselves in music, song, dance, whatever. These are, these are all important parts, as I see, of moving from a, a, a kind of, I see the self-centered self as being very rigid and very inflexible and very, and, uh, and uh, as the name suggests, it's, it's caught in a kind of defensive posture and we're wanting to free up that posture both, yeah, we can work directly at the physical level to help free up that posture, that rigidity, and we can also work at the level of an intimate conversation to, to free that up as well. They both can complement each other. So there's, there's there's one sense in which the you know we could talk it about the of the unborn as our natural functioning. We're, we're hearing, we're seeing, and uh, and that's all happening. But then that's not in our conscious control. The our brain is doing all that for us. Everything's being structured and put into its place. We don't need, we don't have to think about that perspective. Everything. Um, and um, and I think one of the things that meditation can do is it, it can help to 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 maintain a practice of of uh, um, de-familiarization. You know, it's like we want to keep our metaphors alive and not dead. You know how we can when when something becomes a cliche, it dies, um, it loses its vibrancy, its aliveness. That's why. When a, a, a poem, a metaphor in a poem is striking, it strikes you because it's not a cliche. It sort of wakes you up a little bit. You see something that you haven't seen before. Zen's like that. It's a kind of, uh, we want to defamiliarize the familiar. And meditation can help with that. It can help us, you know, wow, notice that flower, which we haven't noticed before. Really see it. But so can, a, so can a lovely poem, or a good song, or a great film. Uh, can leave us with that sense of the familiar becoming de- a great work, a great work of art, defamiliarizes things sometimes. And um, and I think that's that's a really important part of the of the Zen tradition, even the classical Zen tradition, about shaking up those kind of becoming familiar and staid and uh, losing that sense of not knowing or the sense of wonderment or the sense of mystery. Um, and then being able to share it with, with each other, you know, to have a, 
intimate conversation where, you, where we start to feel connected and close. And um, that's also, I believe, an important part of Zen practice. Um, so, um, that's, all I, that's all I want to say. I could, I could go on, but I'd like to leave it there.